eat and treat them. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 17th of May. A warm welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. China's economy contracted sharply in April as lockdowns, particularly in Shanghai, depressed business and manufacturing activity and prevented consumers from spending. Industrial output experienced only the second monthly contraction since 1990. Retail sales fell 11.1% year-on-year in April, the biggest fall since March 2020. In Shanghai, the citywide lockdown meant not a single car was sold last month. The unemployment rate in China's 31 largest cities climbed to a new high of 6.7% in April, and the jobless rate among those aged 16 to 24 hit a record 18.2%. Meanwhile, the People's Bank of China left the interest rate on one-year policy loans unchanged on Monday, despite expectations by a growing number of economists that Beijing will cut rates once more. The PBOC kept the rate on its medium, on its one-year medium-term lending facility at 2.85%. It last cut the MLF rate in January. Total new COVID cases in Shanghai fell to 938 on Sunday from 1,369 on Saturday, the first time the daily tally has been below 1,000 since March 23rd. Shanghai authorities announced on Monday that the financial and commercial hub will restart social activities and a full resumption will be conducted in phases from June the 1st to late June, by which time the city aims to fully resume normal life. Japanese producer prices rose at their fastest rate on record in April because of soaring raw material costs and a weaker yen. The Bank of Japan reported the producer price index surged 10% from a year ago, exceeding economists' forecasts of 9.4%. And the European Commission on Monday cut its growth forecast and raised its inflation outlook for both the Eurozone and the EU overall because of the impact of the war in Ukraine on the economy. The EU and Eurozone are forecast to expand by 2.7% this year, much lower than the previous expectation of 4%, and inflation is expected to surge above 6% in both the EU and Euro area this year, with some countries experiencing double-digit price rises. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Leeds Securities and Carlos Casanova of UBP. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Money talk on, on Wall Street, U.S. shares faltered on Monday as investors weighed up the poor economic data from China and the cut in the EU's growth forecasts. Also weighing on sentiment were comments from Lloyd Blankfein, chairman of Goldman Sachs, who said on Sunday there was a very, very high risk of a U.S. recession. The S&P 500, which has dropped for six consecutive weeks, its longest weekly losing streak since June 2011, extended those losses on Monday, dropping 0.4% to 4,008. The Dow, that rose 27 points to end the session at 32,223. 
and the Nasdaq that fell 1.2% to 11,663. The Pan-European Stocks 600 Index was unchanged on the day and London's FTSE 100 rose 0.6%. Mainland Chinese shares gave up early gains following the release of the disappointing economic data. The Shanghai Composite ended the day 0.3% lower at 3,074 the Hang Seng gave up gains of 1.4% shortly after the open and was down 0.4% by the end of the morning session. The index recovered in the afternoon to close 51 points or a third of a percent higher at 19,950. 19, the Hang Seng Tech Index was flat on the day. JP Morgan uh, Chase upgraded the rating on some large technology companies, saying that uncertainty had receded in the industry. Ratings on NetEase, Tencent, Alibaba, Metroan, IQIWI, Dingdong and Pindodo were all revised higher from underweight to overweight. JP Morgan said Chinese tech stocks were uninvestable just two months ago. And property developers rose after Beijing cut mortgage rates for the first time for first time home buyers. Country Garden Holdings jumped ten point four percent in Hong Kong. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil jumped 2.4% to $114.06 on optimism that China's lockdowns are coming to an end. Coal from the Australian port of Newcastle, which is the benchmark coal price for the Asian market, has reached a new record high of almost $400 a tonne. And wheat prices rose by the maximum amount allowed on Monday after India imposed a ban on exports. Futures traded in Chicago rose as much as 5.9% to $12.47 a bushel, their highest level in two months. And gold rose 0.7% to $1,824 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield is down four basis points at 2.89%. And the US dollar's weaker this morning. The euro is at $1.4 and a third cents. The greenback's worth 129 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.23 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 67 cents. Chinese yuan is at 6.79 three quarters in offshore markets. And the Hong Kong dollar traded at 7.85 against the US dollar, hitting the weekend of its band for the fifth day. The HKMA said it spent 5.89 billion Hong Kong dollars to defend the currency peg system. And around Asian stock markets uh, this morning, the ASX 200 in Australia, first of all, that's up a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan off a third of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea up about half a percent. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to rise about 150 points at the open this morning. Times 810, let's welcome our guests. On the phone we have James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Leeds Securities. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. And also with us in the studio over in Queensway, Carlos Casanova, Senior US, uh, a Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Morning, Carlos. Good morning, Peter. Um, China's economy contracted sharply in April as lockdowns, particularly in Shanghai, dis- depressed business and manufacturing activity and prevented consumers from spending. Let's go through some of the numbers. Industrial output, that was down 2.9% year-on-year in April compared to growth of 5% in March. 
It was the slowest pace since February 2020 and only the second monthly contraction since 1990. The production of cars plunged 44% and in Shanghai, the city lockdown meant uh, not a single car was sold last month. Retail sales fell 11.1% year on year in April. That's the biggest fall since March 2020 with the decline accelerating from 3.5% the prior month. That was far worse than economists' expectations for a fall of 5.9%. Fixed asset investment grew 6.8% year-on-year in the January to April period, but down from 9.3% in the prior period. And the jobless rate, which doesn't include tens of millions of migrant workers, rose to 6.1% in April from 5.8% in March. Carlos, the data is bad, pretty bad. Is it as bad as you expected or or is it even worse? Mm -hmm. Um, The data is definitely bad. Um, We were expecting um, very weak activity in April. Um, So indeed, my view was that the weakest months would be March, April and May. So we still have May to look forward to. Um, But um, having said that, given that it was, you know, disappointing on most indicators. Um, It does suggest that um, there is going to be some downside pressure to consensus. Uh, Some of the other um, analysts might have to revise um, their views for for Chinese GDP this year. So we we do think that it will trigger um, a downgrade cycle in terms of growth. Um, There are indeed some downside risks for the remainder of the year. um, And uh, it it does definitely make it more challenging um, to achieve that 5% growth target this year if uh, you have to go from, you know, minus 11% retail sales, possibly even worse in May, um, to a rebound in consumption in the second second half. It's just going to make things more challenging. Do you think the economy is contracting this quarter? I think the economy will contract in sequential terms. There is no no doubt about that. And it will be a sharper than expected contraction in in sequential terms. Um, In year-on-year terms, we do expect um, the economy to be flat, um, if not slightly negative. Um, And that is uh, quite a big departure from the previous consensus of 4.6% expansion in Q2. So as I mentioned, there will be some downside risks to consensus expectations in the coming weeks. Um, But we we are, the, the sort of big question mark is whether they will be able to pivot away from lockdowns um, in June. They've said May 20th, but, you know, we're already May, uh, almost there and, and there's no sign that things are um, relaxing. But if they are able to pivot away from lockdowns in June, it is possible that we might see a, a recovery in consumption uh, just purely from pent-up demand. So that could complicate, that could add a little bit of a boost to Q2 GDP. But, you know, with such negative two quarters, I think we are looking at overall a contraction in the second quarter. James, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, is it as bad as you thought? Any, any glimmer of light in the data anywhere? Uh, not really. The uh, the consumption numbers are a lot worse than we when we than we expected. Uh, because last time I was here, I was quoting the numbers from a Bloomberg article. It was uh, using two companies, one in the U.S. and one in China. They, these two companies have satellites, and the satellites uh, they were using satellites to oversee the economic activities inside of China during the pandemic, at least until uh, April 12. And uh, by April 12, they observed that uh, factory outputs has not really been uh, depress or 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 uh, drop down for uh, by a large uh, number, but uh, they've they've observed a a uh, actually a build up in consumption, uh, especially offline consumption, um, for uh, uh, from March to 
uh, April 12th because they were counting cars out of the uh, major um, shopping malls in in mainland China, and they found that the car flows actually grow by uh, April 12th. So I, I was kind of expecting uh, consumption numbers uh, being not as bad as we what we we have just saw, and uh, we, we we know. Uh, the uh, the fixed assets investments uh, were supposed to be a lot worse because a lot of construction sites were suspending and uh, their construction projects were uh, or the construction activities were decreased by about 80 percent. And uh, this does not really reflect in the numbers that we just saw. And we... we yeah. The, 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 the infrastructure investments, Beijing's been very much counting on that to prop up growth this year, but that's slowed very sharply as well. Exactly. Infrastructure uh, from the satellite images is slowed by 8% or so. And uh, uh, even if we can step out of this Omicron outbreak by June, let's say, and then we were entering uh, raining season, and usually in the second quarter or the first quarter of uh, uh, the first month of the third quarter, there weren't that many uh, construction projects starting because it's raining mm-hmm. and it's uh, difficult to do construction work. So, so uh, yeah, I know they've put a lot of emphasis on uh, fixed assets investments on uh, infrastructure constructions, but uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't see that being very helpful at least for the next two months. Mm. And, uh, do you think the five and a half percent growth target that the government set is that now completely off the table? It's, it's going to be very, very hard. Yeah, especially uh, we we are uh, on the same page with PBOC uh, when they decided not to uh, ju- to cut rates uh, because we don't think this is the right time to cut rates, especially because the the basic functional units in the economy is not really functioning right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so after after the Omicron outbreak, it's probably be a lot better uh, in terms of timing for them to cut rates again and so to cut all different kinds of rates. But right now, it's not a good time. And uh, the, the problem is, even though uh, the numbers, the case numbers are dropping, and we are expecting a, uh, the, the lockdown to subside in the coming month, uh, what if there are new different kinds of variants? What, what if the, there are just single or uh, a few numbers of, of uh, confirmed cases spotted throughout different cities in the country? Uh, the, the, I think the local governments are still pretty uh, prone to have a full-scale lockdown if they just spot one or two cases, mm. uh, confirmed cases. This is going to add a lot of uncertainty to the uh, economy. Okay, Carlos, um, once the lockdowns are over, hopefully they will be soon, are you expecting a sharp rebound in the economy as we saw back in 2020 in the last uh, big surge of the pandemic? Or has this time uh, more permanent damage been done to the Chinese economy? I, I think um, the rebound will depend on a number of factors. First of all, whether they are able to uh, contain um, the spread of Omicron. Um, it is a more contagious albeit um, less deadly virus. So it could turn into a game of whack-a-mole where they try to uh, suppress uh, numerous um, local outbreaks while simultaneously boosting growth. Um, Second is, of course, uh, when that large-scale infrastructure investment uh, translates into a pickup in real demand. There's usually uh, at least a six-month lag between when the policies are announced and when you have orders for steel and and cement, etc. So so that could take a little bit of time. And the third point is when they... um, 
push through with their monetary policy easing pivot, which they've been talking about for a number of months. My concern here is that I totally get the point from PBOC that easing uh, when everybody is locked up at home is not effective because mm -hmm. of the transmission mechanism won't work. But the, the problem is rising inflation with inflation at 2.1%, um, pork supply chains normalizing, food prices up by a lot. I think fuel was 28.4% and, and vegetables were 24%. So we're seeing a lot of um, food price inflation, excluding pork. Um, with pork supply chains normalizing, that's going to put a lot more pressure on domestic prices. And so PBOC could see itself in a position where they want to ease, but they have an overshoot in inflation over the summer and they are not in a position to ease which would complicate this rebound in the second half. So in sum, to answer your question briefly, I think um, it will be challenging for them to engineer a sharp rebound in the second half. James, is the policy response that we've seen from the authorities and the stimulus measures, are they enough so far to prevent a prolonged downturn? Uh, not on, I think on the, uh, on the top level, yes, we've seen the, uh, uh, the Politburo meetings, we've seen the economic uh, committee meetings, and they all stand positive signals. But, but uh, what, I, what I see uh, in the, the whole thing is the, the two things are uh, really of my concerns. One is the logistic, logistic chains are not back to normal at all. And the second is, I, I think, like I said, the local local governments are under a lot of pressure in terms of executing this COVID zero policy. So they are, uh, no matter what kind of uh, stimulus policy there are, the local governments are going to do their best to contain the virus, which means it might uh, suppress the economy by doing so, by, by containing, trying to contain the virus. And I think there are only uh, one good sign out of the uh, recent outbreak or the uh, uh, the release of lockdown uh, is is in uh, is from Shanghai uh, because we've seen news about shops being reopened in the past uh, several times and uh, it it has become a, a meme uh, a type of meme in Weibo or in any other uh, mainland Chinese social media but uh, there are positive signs one is. Uh, there is this economy airliner called uh, Spring Autumn Airliner, airline, and uh, they, uh, they recently reopened the uh, uh, the outgoing flights uh, coming out of China, uh, mm -hmm. coming out of Shanghai, and then uh, there were high-speed railway uh, trains coming out of Shanghai to Shenzhen as well. I think uh, even though the the the, the foreign media uh, are probably not putting a lot of trust in those news conferences. Saying China is being, uh, Shanghai is being reopened, but I think these two signs are pretty kind of positive or offer a, a, a thread of hope. Um, Carlos, one the problem is the, the the stimulus measures that we've seen have really focused on the supply side, things like tax cuts for companies, but. Um, they're not going to benefit that much anyway if uh, right now if everything's locked down. But the real problem, isn't it, is on the demand side. That's why retail sales um, have collapsed. But Beijing seems quite reluctant to sort of support households um, directly. Does it need to do more to try and boost the demand side? Maybe, you know, things like what we've done in Hong Kong, hand out consumption vouchers, for example. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's absolutely correct. I think the measures are focused uh, on supply side drivers um, of growth. Um, it might be 
easier said than done to implement uh, stimulus on the demand front. Definitely, given the large size of China's population, um, a cash handout type of scheme um, would be very complex. But I think they can do uh, various other things to promote growth. First of all, there's boost sentiment. So come out with a five-year blueprint for housing sector reform and uh, tech platform reform. Uh, providing some visibility on the regulatory front will help um, with uh, consumer sentiment because people know what to expect and so they, that should uh, promote uh, consumption. And second is uh, redirect a lot of the um, fiscal buffers to supporting employment. I mean, 6.1%. And given the large size of China's workforce, um, that means there's approximately 58.1 million unemployed people not taking mm -hmm. into account migrant workers. That is almost the same size as Italy's entire population. That is a big problem, in my opinion, um, in terms of boosting consumption. Um, and given that we, we don't really see the light at the end of the tunnel yet with the approach to managing Omicron, um, I, you know, a lot more needs to be done in order to ensure that, that those vulnerable groups um, you know, are still able to access funds. Uh, James, the final word to you. The other, the other standout from this data was just how bad uh, the property sector has been hit. Property sales sank almost 30% uh, yes. year on year from a year earlier. It seems that the, the decline in the property sector is getting even worse. That's another problem, isn't it, for the economy? Yes, I think uh, there, there was there, there there was a solution, a rumored solution, uh, going around about uh, a month and a half ago, uh, with PBOC building up a pool for the uh, banks who was lending money to the public sector. Then that pool was said to be about uh, ten. Uh, it's it's about a one a one trillion uh, renminbi uh, in size, and it, we've heard news about that. We've heard rumors about that, but there was no uh, follow-up uh, news or updates about how this pool was set up and how it's going to lend, it's going to help or bail out the banks that, that uh, had bad loans with the property sector. If that, uh, if this news solidifies, I think uh, it's going to be a little better. But right now, we don't really see a lot of developers have mm. the guts to go into developing different kind of new property projects. And uh, without this, they are going to have a slow asset turnover and their balance sheets are not as strong as before. Uh, and uh, they are having, they're, they're, they're still going to be having problems paying off their debts, especially offshore debts. Okay, well, thank you very much. Good, for you. Good to hear your analysis on that important data. That's James Wong, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Lead Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. 8.25 on the phone now from Tokyo is journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Now, we have had some data out as well from uh, from Japan. Uh, producer prices rose at their fastest pace on record uh, in April because of soaring raw material costs in a week again. The PPI surged 10% uh, from a year ago. Prices of timber and wood jumped 56%, petroleum and coal by almost 31%, and iron and steel prices 30%. This is quite a staggering um, rise, isn't it? Yes, the Bank of Japan is finally getting what it's wanted for the last 10 years very desperately, and it could not be happier, or it could not be sadder, I'd rather say. Um, and in many ways, what you're seeing is Japan is getting a lot of inflation suddenly, but it's the bad kind, right? It's uh, You have a weekend, which is down significantly this year, 
and you have rising commodity prices around the world. I think Japan has hoped for this kind of, you know, this, this sort of cycle where Japan's growth would improve, and people would spend more, and prices would rise organically. You're seeing exactly the opposite. So at the moment, also, Japan's economy is slowing. So the talk here in Tokyo is stagflation. And mm. it's, it'll be interesting to see the extent to which the government can try to respond to this, but there isn't a lot they can do at the moment. I mean, the, the, overseas, there's been fears in the US and Europe that central banks have lost control now of inflation. Are we starting to see signs of the same thing in Japan? The Bank of Japan is losing control. Well, I think Japan's inflation spike is probably a bit of, a, of, of an outlier from what you'll see, say, six months into the future. Japan's inflation rates probably will not remain elevated like this. But, you know, certainly Japan is experiencing inflation. Now, the BOJ has been targeting 2% inflation for 9 to 10 years now, and suddenly inflation is overshooting that. But I think the real concern still in Japan is still the U.S. I mean, inflation there is at 40-year highs. The Federal Reserve will be tightening. And the more the Fed tightens and the more the BOJ basically sit still, the more this interest rate differential problem weakens the end further, which means mm. Japan's import prices will rise. So you've got these supply chain problems, you've got commodity prices surging, you've got a weak yen, and you've got a BOJ that's in a bad spot because if the BOJ begins winding back stimulus, in some ways, then the stock market has problems. So the BOJ is in a very tight spot right now. And, and companies, presumably, are going to have to pass on these price rises um, to their customers. Now, at least overseas, we have seen wages rise um, to partly offset that. But wages aren't rising at all in Japan, are they? Exactly. Wages here are not rising, and that really is the problem. That's been the problem over the last 10 years, is that you've seen corporate profits surging, uh, companies have not passed wages, wage increases along to people. To tell you how bad things are getting here with inflation, Asahi, the beer company, recently announced they were raising prices. Now, the Japanese take their beer very seriously. So when beer prices begin <laughs> to rise, that's when things get, uh, you know, get, get, you know, urgent. And so in many ways, you're right. It's very, I mean, this inflation surge Japan is seeing, it's very, very sudden. Uh, the government said very little about it. The BOJ said very little about it, I think, for the most part, because they know it's a bit beyond their control. So the question is, what does the government do at this point to essentially subsidize these increases in prices and, and hope that they don't get worse? And what is the weak yen making things worse? Well, I mean, because basically Japan is a, is a country without conventional natural resources at all. So... You know, oil, gas, um, everything is, you know, a lot of food is being imported. And so suddenly that's a problem. You see a lot of uh, sort of convenience store chains here, a lot of fast food restaurants here suddenly are having a very hard time buying affordable chicken, if you will, buying mm -hmm. affordable vegetables, buying affordable beverages. And so the import prices are surging and those are being passed along to the consumers, not as quickly, say, in the U.S., but it's beginning to happen. So the weak yen in many ways is probably in a position that Japan, you know, it's sort of like the, it's, it's kind of a perfect inflation storm, mm. if you will, for Japan. And the fact is the yen will probably be weaker six months, you know, six months from now than it is today. And we're seeing signs, aren't we, that because of the weak yen and the, some of the problems now with wise, rising wages overseas, Japanese manufacturers are actually starting to move their offshore operations in China and Southeast Asia back to Japan. 
Yes, it is interesting. You see some reshoring. So in some ways, if you're a Japanese politician, you might say, well, that's actually good news from a job standpoint. But then Japan has another problem, which is very tight labor markets, right? And so Japan is not importing a lot of labor. Japan's labor force is getting older and older. And because of Omicron, a lot of women have been taken out of the workforce. And so the, the question is, will there be enough labor to sustain these, these this kind of you know, reshoring activity? But it is an interesting dynamic for 2022. It's not something a lot of people had on their economic bingo card, if you will. Okay. Well, William, thank you very much. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesci. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up about a quarter of a percent right now. The ASX 200 in Australia is rising half a percent. The, uh, the Cosby in South Korea is up about 0.6%. Looks like the Hang, Se- Hang Seng is going to open about 160, 170 points higher later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The COVID update with Jim Gordon, and Paul Zimmerman is coming up after the news. The weather forecast for today, cloudy periods at first. It's going to become fine and dry during the day. The maximum temperature will be about 25 degrees. Sunny periods in the next couple of days, a few showers in the latter part of this week. 21 degrees right now, 77% relative humidity. Here's Andrew Shorosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. A China economic analyst says it's still too early to say whether the planned easing of a weeks-long lockdown in Shanghai will help boost the mainland economy. New figures released yesterday showed both retail sales and industrial production slumping to their weakest growth in two years. Ben Cavender from the China Market Research Group says the hope is that consumers will emerge from the lockdowns eager to spend. I think everybody that's looking at China's industrial capacity and ability to manufacture is still very worried right now. There isn't really anything um, that's happened yet to really sort of unsnarl the the major domestic supply chain issues we have. Um, And we have obviously still a big international supply chain issue as well. So I think you're going to start seeing probably some interest, you know, coming back into the stock market going forward, Um, probably some interest suggesting that maybe, you know, in in Q3, we're going to see a big rebound in consumer spending. So I'd look out for maybe money flowing into consumer stocks. But I, I would still be fairly cautious at this point, I would say. Meanwhile, authorities in Shanghai have reported a slight drop in the number of new COVID cases. The 823 mostly asymptomatic cases was down from, oh, down by 115 from the day before. There were zero cases found outside quarantined areas. One additional death was reported compared with four a day earlier. Overseas, Sweden has formally announced its decision to join NATO a day after Finland did the same. The announcement was made by the Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson. After the government's debate, we had an additional meeting and we made two decisions. The first is that the government has decided to inform NATO that Sweden wants to become a member of the alliance and that the Swedish ambassador to NATO will put this request forward shortly. Ms. Andersson said Europe was living in a dangerous new reality and joining the alliance was the best thing for Sweden's security. But she said her country did not want permanent NATO bases or nuclear weapons on its territory. European allies have welcomed confirmation of Sweden's decision to apply for NATO membership. Norway, Denmark and Iceland said they were ready to support Finland and Sweden by all means necessary if they came under attack. The countries added they would start preparing to put security assurances in place. 
The moves in Stockholm and Helsinki have drawn a measured response from President Putin. Finland, Sweden, I would like to inform you, dear colleagues, that Russia has no problem with these states. An expansion to these countries does not pose a direct threat to us, to Russia. But the expansion of military infrastructure to these territories will certainly provoke our response. Sri Lanka's new Prime Minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe, says the country urgently needs 75 million U.S. dollars to pay for essential imports.